equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. My name is Kyle Church. This is our midweek podcast, and we're joined by a special guest, tax consultant and commentator, Terry Boucher. How are you doing, Terry? Kia Kyle. Very nice to be with you tonight. I've wanted to get a long-form cast about this stuff published for a while now, and this election has kind of put us in a spot where I can finally create a reason to do that. So thank you so much for joining us. We were just saying in the discussion before we started recording, this feels like one of the first times where tax has been a significant topic that's actually being covered by both the political parties and the media in a way which is a bit new. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it does feel like that at, at all. Um, why that's so, I think possibly is that there's a se- sense that there's a lot that has to be done. And it's also around the politics. I mean, tax is politics. I always talk about that. I was there when Shama Yakov said tax is love. And I thought, mm, yeah, it's a, good, <laughs> uh, it's a good line. I know where he was coming from on that. But ultimately, tax is politics. It's the rawest form of politics. I mean, the, the, the politics about who pays tax and why is really quite fascinating. You, you, you get looks into it all. So I never, you know, I've always looked at tax as being very political. And I think... Why it's got to be so political now is the recognition of, um, <clears throat> you know, we've just spent a lot of money managing the COVID response. That's kept in the background. And it's, uh, and the bills are starting to arrive for climate change. And the bills are also in for hospitals. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, the hospitals, I was just thinking of the doctors' uh, strike, education. All those bills are, are arriving now. And <clears throat> there's been a cosy assumption around uh, for 30 years. I've been in, I've worked in New Zealand now 30 years. I came here to watch the Lions tour in 1993 and didn't go home. And um, it's actually 30, I started working in tax in New Zealand 30 years ago in August. So it's, it's been interesting. I've been looking back at, at, at it all. Um, National has come out with its usual tax cuts. The, the problem is this, the system has been run on autopilot for a long time and things have been allowed to pile up. But Bill, Bill English was a master at, and you could probably put the rot starting with Bill English, but also Michael Cullen. We're, t- we're talking a lot about tax thresholds and adjustments, et cetera. So the two things we want to keep in mind, you know, what is being taxed, what level of tax is happening, why, and people are feeling a real crunch right now around um, cost of living. And how do you deal with that? Well, tax is a tool which is pretty quick. You can say, make changes practically overnight saying, we'll have a tax cut here or will increase when you, whenever you want to make an adjustment to change um, a tax setting for economic reasons. Um, you can do in taxes is a reasonably rapid tool to deploy. Um, you can basically turn off the tap on certain types of activity by just jacking the tax rate up overnight. You can do that. Um, and I think what's happened here is people are saying, we're feeling the squeeze now. Squeezed middle is the the squeezed middle, the crushed bottom, and uh, the not so bad top. Um, but the squeezed middle is definitely it, 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 there's definitely that's been happening. But that's a pressure I think has been building for some time. 
because politicians have actually been quite cynical about how they've used tax and tax thresholds. Um, you're about to ask yeah, something. Yeah, like, you know, you're saying at the start, um, tax is political, but that cynicism has come out in the sense that for the political parties, tax is electorally political, um, first and foremost. It's about what can we do at a particular given time to get to get power. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and this is where two, the two words collide, and I think it's given both the major parties real problems for themselves. As I said, tax is political. But if you only look at it in a political lens, you just drive yourself into a dead end. And that's certainly true of Labour, I think. They've looked consistently at tax in a political, we've got a problem here, and we're seen as a high-tax party. Um, and so they, they, they're sort of a bit Jekyll and Hyde about it. They, they've seen as a high-tax party, but they represent themselves and actually do act as a fiscally conservative government in, in, in approach. People say they're actually, you, you look at it, um, they've, <clears throat> they've been much more conservative in their approach and fiscally sound than National have over the time I've been here, but they, so they've driven themselves into a bunker about perceptions, and that and perception has become reality. And they've never engaged on the issue we're talking off air about is well, what do we use tax for? As I'm saying, tax is seen as transactional. What's in it for me? And then, and this is really true when you come to talking about the big, big problem at the heart of the New Zealand tax system: we don't tax capital very well. We don't ta- We hardly tax it. Uh, we don't have a capital gains tax, but people forget we don't have an estate and gift duties either. And it's actually the combination of being all three, all three missing is makes, it's what makes the New Zealand system, tax system so unique because most other jurisdictions around the world, they have two or three of those um, taxes in place. America has all three, Britain has all three. Australia has a capital gains tax. Amazingly, we still keep being to, we keep being told that a capital gains tax would crush investment, and no one stops to say, "Well, and, and why is then America the richest country in the world yeah. with a capital gains tax?" The, the, the logic falls over, and Labour won't engage on the debate. I think if you're talking about tax, it was interesting to hear what David Parker said about the tax switch and admiring the political. Um, noose, noose that um, Key and English displayed in 2010. Well, we're we're reducing income tax. We're switching across to consumption taxes. You know that's a proper, you know, makes sense. GST is a very regressive tax. Hits the poorest hardest. But you know the politics were there, and also you can't run away from this. What's in it for me? Approach, and you do wonder. As I said, to, to pick up the thread I was saying earlier on. English and <clears throat> Cullen, they didn't raise tax thresholds and they relied on something called fiscal drag, which means as wages increase because of inflation, the tax rate, a person's earnings drag them into higher tax rates. Now, I can share it, but if you take 1989 as a start point, because that's basically when the end of the tax reforms or the current task, tax structure at 33% was introduced. We have actually only changed thresholds, the rates which they apply, the, the thresholds which they pay at five times over that 35-year period. And the yes. last threshold adjustment was in 2010. 
And so what has happened is you see is this this fiscal drag enables governments to collect more tax through from pay through pay as you earn and nobody notices it too much and it's nice and it's in the money but then you hit the problems we are now and you want to make adjustments and suddenly it's really really expensive you're talking about two billion dollars a pop so the, and you're the not cost actually, that we hadn't forecast for suddenly come home to roost right that's and right. it hasn't we, been covered incrementally by the slow changes yes that's correct you slowly if you keep tax rates in line rising in line with inflation etc or thresholds in line in line with inflation you don't get fiscal drag treasury i i go to the budget lockups um i'm a true tax tragic but i'm i'm proud of it um <laughs> i've often asked treasury officials in there you know tell me where I can find the fiscal drag effect. And they sort of go muscle and look at their shoes and you think, well, we can't actually, haven't really quantified that. So it's there, it's built into the forecasts. And English was a, a, a master at not changing thresholds. So he didn't change the thresholds for working for families for index for inflation. He didn't do that for student loan, loan repayments. He jacked up the loan repayment rate from 10% to 12%, effectively increasing the tax rates for students. And all this in there, he did a whole pile of this stuff. <clears throat> and it all raised a lot of money very efficiently and quietly. But it built up this pressure where more and more families were coming under uh, pressure with their earnings taking them to higher tax, what we call effective marginal tax rate, which means what is the effect of the last dollar? What tax rate is it applied? And in this, people always forget that it's actually beneficiaries who pay them have the highest effective marginal tax rate. Anyone who's working for families, they lose 27 cents and more dollar once they cross a threshold. Um, or if they're actually out of work, they're on job seeker. There is a very low threshold about how much income they can earn before they basically start losing 50%. So what effective marginal tax rates of 50, 60, 70, 80% are quite high on the group that ACT and National in particular is saying, we've got all these bludgers. And I see what's his name, Richard Preble, was at it again this morning. At the same time as, as kind of doing this rhetoric around cost of living and like how it's so tough. This has been a problem since the 80s, right? Um, well, the, the, the 80s. I mean, I think <clears throat> the Dieter de Bonias said it about Preble's um, column. And we're still stuck in the 80s. We're still in the 1980s. I think we are actually, a lot of policy think makers are stuck in the 1990s, early 1990s. Uh, I formed that view <clears throat> when I was on the government small business council. I was impressed by the quality of people I was working with, the availability of data, but I just all thought that it kept running up against this idea that was just sacrosanct. The market should decide and active government intervention is just a simple no-no. And I just thought small businesses, they need active intervention. We need active intervention. Their cost of living crisis has been exacerbated because we've got weak regulators. They're bearing their teeth now, but it's a bit late. Um, you know, it's all well and good to say the market shall rule all, but it comes with regulation. And Adam Smith was very clear on that point, but that bit of Adam Smith, they seem to sidestep. Don't know why. Oh, because, it, because it became more convenient to sidestep it uh, more yes. than anything else, right? So we've got we've got problems. The cost of living is a, a combination of a war and an energy spike. And the two, the war and the energy spike had uh, combined, and then of course the, the the effect of a pandemic, and we have a scenario where 
everyone wants to go back to how it was in pre-BC, before COVID. It's just not going to happen. But we have Acton National in particular and, and, and Winston, God help us, Peter, still floating around, all wanting to say, as we can take you back, put the country back on track, taking your country back. It's very regressive. And it just simply ignores how the world is changing. If you, I, 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 it's interesting. I bumped into Chloe Swarbrick in, in a TV3 studio. This sounds such a terrible name dropping and posing. <laughs> if you're not going to do it on this podcast, where are you going to do it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you. And we, um, she was talking about you know forty year cycles, and I'd sort of reached that conclusion. And I said, look, yeah. you know, Thatcher was elected in 1979. She was in 1979. You can look at three things happening: the election of Thatcher. Paul Volcker becomes the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank in America and uh, the Iranian Revolution. And you've got a, a sea change. The post-war consensus breaks down. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's 43, 44 years ago. You take 43 years from, deduct the 43 years from 1979. Where are you? 1936. And then you go another 43 years back to 1893. So you've got these political cycles. And I think since the GFC, we've been in a different cycle. The, the, um, the all things are lost. The center cannot hold, you know, Yates line. And uh, I think it's Gramsci as well. Gramsci. Is it Gramsci? Anyway, um, uh, don't quote socialist scientists you haven't read. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but we're in a new cycle here. The tax cut era, and I think the collapse of Liz Truss's government was really quite actually a strong metaphor for that. They tried it. It fell apart disastrously. And even down here, Luxon and Willis said, uh, yeah, no, those 39% cut, cut tax cuts, the 39% tax rate, they're off the agenda. The recognition was the fiscal position had changed. The demands on the economy were such. I think there's a lot of talk about how much we spend, how much we tax, and actors saying, cut this, that, and the other, and nationals saying, we can cut this, that, and the other. The question I put to them is that if the economy works as well as you say it is, and we have basically followed the model you wanted and the OECD and IMF in the early 1990s said, well, New Zealand's got this, you know, that's the way it should be, reformed process all gone out. Why aren't we all doing better? And so why, and there were, there were flaws in the gap and a big flaw in the tax system was not introducing capital gains tax. And it, it seems to me that the government steps in to fill a hole the markets cannot deliver. And this is one of the things that really, greats about talking about countries as businesses. They're not. I run a business, my own business. Um, I choose my customer. And you know, you get told, you want to see me, this is what it costs to see me. And that, that's a business in, in there. But when you're running a country, you don't get to choose who's there. There's this group of the underclass is there, the all the various strains and histories, they're all there. Just you 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 basically have you can't just dance with them that brung you. I think you'll find that both Act and National absolutely just want to do that. Well, yes, they, they do. They, they absolutely do. And they think they can do that. And people think in these transactional terms. Sorry, I didn't kill the... Um, they think in these transactional terms and not think about, well, you've, you're now responsible for these. So it, it comes back to what I've said earlier about tax being a mutual obligation. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a, maybe wandered off the point a little bit there. <laughs> Um, I think there's a good. I think there's a good background. We've we've covered 
a bunch of stuff which has happened uh, since the 1980s. We've talked about the 1990s stuff and the issues that have helped to create the current state that we're in. We're now in a period where a lot of these crises and incoming crises are very apparent. You said we're only just starting to feel some of the, the stuff that's going to be coming with uh, the climate crisis. I think the, cli- the climate crisis is fascinating because I see today that uh, Luxon was saying, well, we're going to be meeting our commitments by 2050. And this, this, the, I, I, this is a, I think it's a problem for us to be talking about 2030 and 2050 because people then think, oh, we really, really don't have to do anything until yep. then. That's kind the of the intent, are, right? Yeah, the bills are now coming in. It was $2 billion for Auckland Council and the government for Cyclone Gabriel. Wairoa and uh, Tarafiti East Coast, those councils cannot afford the repairs. They have appalling erosion issues already, and then all this rain dumped on top of them. That's the ground sort of, the, the bills have arrived now, and we're not budgeting for it. And so we've, we've actually had to, we, we're going to have to try and do a twin track of mitigation and Adapt, elimination and adaptation. We're going, to, and that means that's going to cost us. Yeah, and that's cost. You know, that's cost this year. That's cost before this election's even taken place. Those have started yeah. to come in. Given the summer and some of the other uh, countries around the world, uh, who knows what's uh, coming for us over uh, November, December? That, that would worry. That worries me greatly because of um, um, you know, you see what the damage we suffered this year, and you think. The ground hasn't recovered. What's uh, what if another cyclone turns up? It doesn't even need to be anywhere near the intensity mm-hmm. of Cyclone Gabriel. We're, we're more floods, more damage, more bills. Yeah, um, and we're going to be. We're now in a position where um, we have to actively say these are areas we have to retreat from, and there's mm-hmm. liability issues around. I think Wayne Brown's a bloody idiot, but. Every so often, he comes out with his, his some truth. He'd probably say that some places, property shouldn't have been built. Now, as a lawyer, you'd say, for God's sake, Wayne, you just admitted liability for the council. <laughs> um, and, and, and the worst thing is, I've been here long enough, and we saw the shit that went down with the um, leaky buildings. Yeah, and the same thing is going to happen again. Well, and it was and it happened down in Christchurch. Yep, thank you. Just we read my mind simultaneously in there. The councils and government will weasel out and try and screw people down and work with the allow the insurers to screw people down on that. And it just needs to bitterness all around and it delays the whole process. I mean, yeah. I actually got a call from a, someone down in Christchurch earlier this year and he was saying, uh, asking, he, he they still haven't settled the, the damage for him. And he was wow. saying, uh, the payout was still arguing about. It. I mean, that's twelve years ago. That's just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. But we're going to see that magnified many times over. And I, I don't think our politicians are really serious enough about it with us. Yeah. Um, the they're not is, open about it. No, they're not. But <laughs> I guess if we're really cynical, they will be when it's their properties that get flooded out and their beach properties. Because yeah, they've they got seven different properties to retreat to before. <laughs> I got I got I got asked this question as at the end of the seminar. I said, "Why don't we have a capital gains tax?" You know, all of these. And I says, and my view is, you really do have to take a look at self-interest in the, in the, in the, in the parliament. You got fifty percent of MPs are landlords. 
And that's way above the national average. I mean, we probably only got 5% of landlords, if that. And that's, I thought it was unusual when I came here, the number of private landlords there were. If you've got a substantial property portfolio and someone's proposing a tax on that, which you've done very nicely out of, how are you going to react to that? Yeah. You can't ever that's rule out self-interest. Yeah. yeah. If, it's pretty if easy we are, to draw that. If we are worried about Michael Wood's conflict of interests in owning share, Oakland oh, Airport shares. Oh boy, aren't we? Yes. But seven properties, um, Mitchell, so many properties he forgot uh, and on and on and on. You, you just got to say, guys. No, but it's not even just, you know, their personal interests, right? It's their families and their mates. Yeah. You know, these are, these are very tight business circles. Um, they're part of that ecosystem and they talk to people in the ecosystem in a way that other people just won't be. Their inputs are different than the yes. average New Zealander. And, you know, I think we went through a lot of modernization and reform in the 1980s. You, you, you when I, when I arrived here 30 years ago and traveled around, you could just see, I was mulling us over and, you know, complete towns abandoned. Now, I, 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 I was in Northern England under Thatcher and I was, I saw the, um, the Moss Side riots happen. I nearly cycled into the middle of them by accident one night. Uh, now. But I don't actually ever recall coming across totally abandoned towns. And all that happened in about a six to nine year period. It's quite extraordinary. I, you know, I talked about it with someone else. It seems to me if we hadn't had CER, which came in in 1983, that enabled the excess labor that was basically just thrown on the scrap heap to migrate. I I, I think the social problems would have just exploded. Mm. I take that. And we we don't realize we dodged a bullet is, is how I look at it. And I'm probably being doomy and gloomy. And I wasn't here when that was happening, but I look at what went down and I thought the French certainly wouldn't have stood for it. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although they're standing for a fair amount more uh, at the moment as well. But let's not get into French politics. Yep. So we're, we're in this situation. There are lots of costs, lots of people feeling the crunch. People at the top, you know, it's we've got um, a, a series of investigations around the very wealthiest not paying their fair share, if we want to be um, charitable about it. Uh, and clients. <laughs> Even beyond that, you know, we're lacking these key taxes that other jurisdictions have that would allow us to reinvest a fair amount more uh, into society and into our infrastructure and into the other things we need. We're not even at a baseline currently where we're able to, for example, repair the water pipes. You know, this is without the crises. Even without crises, we have been struggling to do that for the last couple of decades uh, to keep things working as they were uh health infrastructure is, is is in the same a similar issue you know you've got hospitals rotting underneath uh the doctors and nurses uh schools um similar issues you know these prefab um schoolhouses just falling apart the roads are in a constant of uh disrepair um as we have allowed heavier trucks to travel on them at higher frequency but have been unable to increase the amount of maintenance to the extent that they might need and we're not taxing the pe the people using them either uh, effectively and now we're in an election where all of those things are coming home to roost each political party is trying to 
find either find a way forward or find a way to make it look like they have a way forward. Um, and I just want to crack into the five main parties. Uh, tax plans on those and and what we think whether we whether you think that they uh meet the needs uh Mm. that the country is currently facing and and the people of the country are currently facing um and or to what extent they're just cynical um and i have opinions about this obviously uh but i do want to hear it from someone who's got expertise in this thank you probably got the wrong person then (laughs) (laughs) but let's Um, um Let's start with national, the National Party because they've been in the news in the last uh, week and a half. And the current understanding is that it just kind of doesn't add up. There's there's a lot to unpick in there. I was really quite surprised when National's plan dropped. Um, <clears throat> uh, it was There were several surprises in there. There was no surprise at all about the inflation adjustments, the, the tax relief, the very cleverly, they've done two things here, and I think people are picking, have picked up on the language. I think people, some of us cynics on Twitter might have picked up on the language, talking about per couple per fortnight, essentially uh-huh. quadrupling the effect for uh, uh, per week for it's, a person. It's just so blatant, and it just. I, I, I thought some. I think uh, Dan Brunskill talked to Media Watch about it. Um, and on this, the sort of thing is, you get very little time to respond and drill into this stuff. I mean, I've been to many budget lockups, and the story you get the, the documents are dropped on you at ten thirty. Um, the finance minister rolls up at twelve, to, uh, takes questions, uh, and then by two o'clock, it's all released. So you have very little time to go through this wedge of documents, pick out what's interesting. What you get get to understand and sort of make sense of it all. So it's not understand. It's quite understandable that dropped when that document from National, very glossy, very professional, ran to sort of thirty pages, uh, PDF, very beautiful, and all the rest of it. Um, and you know the details get a little bit overlooked. There's a lot in there that we haven't talked about in here. But the key thing was, I was first of all surprised they went with a foreign buyers tax, and you thought, well, wow, that's quite something uh you know, um but again it'd be similar to the surprise that john key pulled when he said we're having a bright line test but it's not actually a capital gains tax we're just taxing income you know the, 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 the slide <laughs> line. they use all this language they as i said the thresholds they call it tax relief because they know as i mentioned earlier and i can have the stats and stuff all over the place that the inflation adjustments that they've they've adjusted it for inflation for 11.5%. If you were to do it properly, according to Treasury, you'd be near 30%. So those threshold increases are not substantial, but it's the, the problem is they're expensive. If you, do it, if you don't do it at all, it's like maintenance. If you don't maintain it, you've suddenly got a problem of, yeah, you should have looked after the roof. Now you have to completely replace the roof. And that's essentially where National got into. They'd like to do more. It's part of their ethos, tax cuts. Um, <clears throat> but it's um, they have to fund it. So they said, well, how are we going to fund that? So they, their first wheeze was uh, well, one of the thing, more, more, possibly one of the most cynical wheezes um, is um, the hiking immigration visa fees. And someone made a comment that I was uh, talking with someone about a discussion around trusts of all things came into, and he said, I think we should just treat migrants as people first and foremost and not look at them economically and mm-hmm. i thought that just yeah we should do that and 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 having been a migrant i am a migrant 
you can tell by the accent. I'm not from around here. There was I remember thinking at times that I was being encouraged to spend more money to take another application rather than say, look, seriously, Terry, this isn't going to happen for you now. Here's what I suggest you do. But you know, made another vainglorious, I think I applied three times for residency and the points were never going to work for me. And I should have wasted my time and effort uh, in there. So so that's I think is a cynical approach on there. Then there is the um depreciation, removing depreciation on commercial buildings, which you you've actually got to think there's good if they will have done it twice to fund tax cuts, which is quite something. They did it back in 2010. The story around that actually when funding those tax cuts is that the tax working group then had come back and said, you know what, depreciation on residential properties probably doesn't stack up. Probably really when you think about it, because they're appreciating in value all the time. But yeah, we think it's probably still useful in relation to commercial buildings, which also includes factories. People tend to think, and as someone else has pointed out, farm outhouses, all those sort of buildings and infrastructure that goes in for farming. But National needed to make its numbers work for that set of tax cuts. So that went through as it was a very late decision. Uh, reading through the papers, uh, we that decision was made late in March, late March, early April as well. And the yeah, there's another story that went on in there. The special unit did an end run around Treasury to get the tax cuts and the corporation tax cuts through as well. So National are going to do, do the same thing twice. And then they're going to talk about where well, you want to build an innovative economy and high, na- high wage economy. And I'm thinking, you are taking away an investment type tax allowance to pay for consumption. Don't talk to me about investing. You know, that's just pure cynicism in there your tax policy doesn't stack up on that regard but labor's doing the same for a gst cut we'll say more about that later so those two they'll get the money in there but it's the other two bits that really just look very odd the and got got down to uh, arcane debates about double tax agreements which i never thought i'd ever get to talk about on the radio on this uh the 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 foreign buyers tax, there are two problems with it. First and foremost is the numbers are extremely optimistic. You know, you know Shamabil Jakob, um, much more succinct, you know, calling bullshit on that. The, the, the number of houses that would have to be sold, I think more than half of all sales of houses above $2 million would have to be to foreign buyers. Well, this is the other thing which has been elided somewhat as well, right, is it's not... To have a foreign buyers tax, you need to bring back foreign buyers, mm. which we don't currently allow. No, that's right. And um, <clears throat> someone says, you know, if you're talking about liberalisation and bringing investment in, as I said on the radio, if you're bringing people in, and these are people who are investing in rent to buy new apartments, these apartment blocks, that's new builds, that's investment. You know, uh, it's not as productive as, say, a factory or anything, but it is investment in housing, which we need, and it's a source of finance. But if it's just simply buying uh, Hearn Bay and uh, Paratide drive, uh, drive properties, it's just recycling. It's nothing at all. And if and they the don't have a CGT on, like, later on when they're yeah. selling. That's right. They've, they've, we, uh, um, but I also think that people, that, that, so the numbers just don't seem to stack up. And then there's this whole question about can you actually do it? Well, they've got people to, I've seen the advice 
from a respective and there's this debate about what non-discrimination articles in double tax agreements mean etc and you really are you know robin oliver put it very neatly it's a very esoteric rule of law and i actually was at um, a trans tasman tax conference two three weeks back where we talked about double tax agreements and we had a judge from australia talking about actually these are extremely difficult to interpret when you're a judge in here it's not so easy so it comes back to some advice i'd like to try and be pretty straight with my clients and advice and you come down to well you can do it but should you and this is the point that i made and i noticed eric crampton of new zealand's initiative and we'd be probably polar opposites on politics on this. He made the same point. This could put a reputational risk here. We are seen as honest brokers. We've we've sort of held and made our way in negotiating trade agreements on the basis that we're rule based. We follow the rule based system. But here we have um, we're just going to sort of find a rinky dink way of working our way around a tax treaty. And I know for clients that when I've seen this, you know, some countries do stuff with treaties around pensions for example which means that somebody gets a wax very hard whack of tax which they can't recover which they normally would do under a double tax agreement so there's this sort of sliding around the rules yes you can but it leaves a bit of a bad taste so and the numbers don't stack up that and then the gambling thing again straight away as soon as i saw the numbers i thought well wait a minute i thought gst would apply turns out it did andrew bailey of all people um, the revenue spokesperson for National, he'd actually asked a question about how much was it? You got told in the year to June, March 23, it was $38 million. So that, that is that $38 million in that $170 million revenue already? Um, in which case, that's not new revenue. And then they're saying, we're going to hit them with another $140 million on top. And I can't see how they're going to manage that. And, they, and Nicola Willis seems to think that We'll just geoblock them. And as someone said, I think it might have been yourself, I said, have you ever heard of a VPN? <laughs> um, so it, it's optimistic, but it sounds plausible. When we talk about the politics, it all sounds plausible. The numbers sort of stack up until we get you know, people like myself and others just get into it and say, well, not really. I don't think these numbers stack and up. And what is your take on this? You know, some of the media has been kind of pushing it as over last week, like, oh, it's just, it's just vibes anyway, so it doesn't matter, which I, you know, I get really pissed off about because it's it's that kind of attitude in our media that allows uh, national spokespeople to now get up and just go, oh, no, it'll work, it'll work, it'll work. Um, uh, but can we see your numbers? No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Trust us. No, we've actually got experts here. We've got people who can tell us whether this will work. Um, we have this range of uh, advice that national have said they've received in a unwilling to release the numbers on to have people check that themselves what's like, as an expert what is your vibe about that well it, it concerns me um well as i said tax is politics I mean, people are going to throw stuff on that but if you are selling something where the numbers are pretty false um if you did that with inland revenue you'd be you'd, you'd be encounter something called shortfall penalties uh, and like <laughs> i grew up in northern ireland I was born in Northern Ireland in the 60s, 1961. And so Northern Ireland, very nice place to grow up in. And then the troubles erupted. And suddenly you've got troops on the streets. And, and the family, we left Northern Ireland. The last, um, I remember we sailed out to Belf, uh, from Belfast in June 1972. And 
we're looking back and all you could hear is bomb bangs and smoke rising up from there. So politics has always been in there. I'm a bit of a political nerd on this, but you see, and the accent, I don't have a Northern Ireland accent. Why is that? Because when I went to England, um, you know, I was a stupid, thick Irishman, thick Irish git. And I would be in the scenario where I was being called a thick Irish git by people who are academically lower than me and I actually demonstrably lower than me. But, uh, and also there was, uh, I'm from the, um, I'm a Protestant or Church, Anglican, Church of Ireland. People always ask us, so it, it's more than that. But anyway, ostensibly we were from the, the loyalist side, the unionist side. So we were, we were allies with the English, but we weren't seen like that. And I think you can go about vibes based, this, that, and the other, and treated like a horse race and a bit of a game if there are never any consequences for you. But there are consequences for a lot of, of, of for the little people or not so little people. And you've got to stick it in mind. It, it sticks in my mind. You, every act, politics comes with consequences. And you might not be interested in politics, but sometimes it comes around and hits you right. Punched, everyone's got a plan, as Mike Tyson said. Everyone's got a plan, so they get a punch in the teeth. Yeah, sometimes life gives you a few punches in the teeth. So th this whole thing about treating it as a bit of a vibe, and it's the vibe of this, or the, the it looks good, the politics look good. As I said, tax is politics, but if you look at it only in politics, you just go nowhere. You just get these short-term things. Muldoon was, a, was probably terrible at that because he was forever bringing in these short-term measures to try and fix up this hole or that hole and hoping that nobody would pay attention to it. And then gradually the whole thing just implodes around you. And so you you avoid serious decisions because... And it feels like we've been there for the last couple of decades as well uh, from both major parties. Yeah, well, I, I talked about that this morning. You just look at them and it's just a bit of a sludge really around that. And I thought it's been interesting to hear people talk about a grand coalition. And I thought that's actually been quite possible for some time because oh, on the politics of it, absolutely. Yeah, a, a cynic might. Uh, I heard a cynical comment said, "Well, between the two of them, they might have enough talent then to get things done." But we don't. We don't ask about questions that are really important. Why is it so hard to get things done? Why does it cost so much to build infrastructure here? What has happened that our, our systems are so poor about that and funding of it? I mean. We're, at the same time, I think we're probably a more efficient government than people realise. We're probably a more well-run government. And you, you look at Britain. Um, for let's not. Let's say. not. <laughs> let's not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just think Brexit, to just talk about shitting on your grandchildren and children's future is just the most astonishing decision. But no, no one's taking responsibility there. Again, because those who are responsible for that don't face any consequences. They get knighthoods and earldoms and all the rest of it. Well, not earldoms, but peerages. And so juicy contracts, it seems. Anyway, cynicism aside. Um, so, yeah, this is all fine. But, uh, but on the other hand, I can never, I could not complain about, I talked to a lot of journalists, as you can imagine. Um, and I spoke to six outlets um, except, uh, last Wednesday after National Plan. I've never had any cause for complaints about how I've been represented or mm -hmm. what questions have been asked. Sometimes you think maybe that no, the follow-up questions aren't happening because it's that five-minute slot. They want to get to the next person in there. And I think it comes back to editorialism in here. And I, and I personally, and you may have seen some comments on that, our media is in desperate trouble. And I, I see the latest thing came out today about where everything is. And we saw we're not having a discussion about that, partly because the powers that be in media outlets are very reluctant to take any form of criticism. They seem to take it incredibly personally. 
rather than say, you know, a, a, a media media is incredibly important for our future as a democracy. We've seen what's happened with um, in in the United States with overmighty media crushing. It, it's it's a it's the lack of local knowledge. Um, yeah. local news it matters a lot that's a whole other discussion we it is it is but it's also oh, something which is like you know could be funded our, our media is not well funded it doesn't have there aren't many economics correspondents on board uh, a specialist in there who would be across most of this you know you've got matt nippert for example if matt comes calling you better be bloody sure you've got your story straight he's really very good at <laughs> what, what he does uh, in there but there's just not enough like that in that across the, we used to have, you know, my wife was saying she was over in Australia and they had an economics on the news, just talking on the television news about that. You don't see that now unless it's sponsored. And yeah. so the. By ASB or whoever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's so vibes based reporting. And that's what being unfair on a lot of reporters, but maybe with too much opinion and not enough facts. But then, and that's, it doesn't help the discourse, in my view. No. But then I would say that because my view is, you know, every time I sign an opinion off, you so is this taxable? Is this deductible? It's my livelihood on the line. So naturally, we try and be as accurate as possible. So Nationals plans, not don't particularly stand up well. What What is the punch in the teeth on the back end of Nationals tax plans and their, their ability to pay for stuff during a poly crisis? Uh, should they be elected? If you're low income and you you're already on sort of receiving benefits, working for families' benefits, you're you're really going to be struggling. Um, the removing the um, public transport. I, I spoke one of the outlets I referred to was a student radio station in Christchurch. They rang up and said, "How does this affect us as students?" I said, "Not good. You if you lose that fifty percent discount, you get two dollars a week unless you're earning more than twenty four thousand dollars a year." You're, you're going to be getting $2 a week tax cut. You'll be losing, paying out more than that straight away in increased bus fares and, and the like. So the families will be squeezed. We, we're totally schizophrenic. We want we want families, but we don't do anything to support them uh, or the bare minimum to support them, if, if, if that. So I feel, as always, it's the, it's the enrolled non-vote to be specific about it. The people who don't vote because they're never given a reason to vote and the parties just focus around this small sludgy middle. If you ask them, if, if, you, if you took what the polls tell them, seem to have completely very aim, almost amoral interests. And I don't think that's true. I think they're just people trying to get by as best they can. And they think, yeah, a few cents or oh, tax cut, that would be handy. And it would. Oh, not paying regional fuel tax going, that would be good. Oh, but how are we going to pay for the infrastructure further on? It's this short-term thinking. I think politics is always short-term, but we seem particularly prone to it. And possibly because not enough times do we ask or to the people who should hold it to account, and this is back to the media, saying, yeah, but how is this going to play out in three, six, nine, ten years down the track? And we've had 30 years of reforms in here, and I'm, I'm still looking for people to say, you know, We've been hearing you guys saying this for 30 years now. Shouldn't it be a lot better? I'm cynical. Is it cynical if we've got this uh, amazing amount of evidence? Well, you, you, <clears throat> if when the facts change, I change. I think that was Keynes said that. Yeah, it's it's difficult to change if you've hard set views. And if you're particularly done well out of that economy, you would just realize that actually leveraging and this i've had this discussion with um, a colleague tax colleague he you know saying that 
I said, we basically created a land gentry. And he said, but all I was doing was protecting, building an asset base for my retirement. Yeah, we're talking about building up properties and that. And you could see he was quite confronted by that might not actually have been for the long-term good of everybody. It was in there. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. Over to Labour, whose tax plans <laughs> basically don't exist. Yeah. Labour, here's a wee snippet. I, I talked about this. We, as you, you know, I wrote a co wrote a book, Deborah Russell, um, MP for Teatro 2, uh, Red Deb, good name. <laughs> <laughs> and um, vote for Deb if you're in, in, in uh, New England. Yes. And um, uh, a little background I went to the same school. Admiral Nelson went to the same school as me. You know, he didn't last long. I stopped there <laughs> six years. Um, and every Trafalgar day, we would have morning assembly out by his statue. And this, it was a very English public school and all the rest of it. Now, Nelson's best known, of course, you know, being killed in the battle and England expects every man to do his duty. But that's not the last message he sent. The last message he sent before he was fatally wounded was engage the enemy more closely. And coming back to our off-screen discussion and this, this is Labour's problem. It doesn't engage the enemy national more closely on tax because if you're Labour, you have a better story to tell about tax. You're saying we need this for these reasons. And that's why we need to expand our tax base. The broad-based low rate that you Trump talk about, we have to expand our tax base to do that. We don't necessarily need, and I think you could have, um, you could build the numbers around this. I've tried modeling, tried modeling myself, but you don't necessarily need a 45% tax rate. You might not necessarily need a 39% tax rate. But if you broaden the base and you say, we are going to tax a lot more capital and we raise revenue from that and we're going to build a better economy, because that's what Labour has done. This is going to sound like a vote Labour. <laughs> I'm on the hustings. But if you were to look at the history of New Zealand in the, in the, 20th century and really, the reforms have come from Labour, the first Labour government, the fourth Labour government. I mean, you might not like the legacy of the fourth Labour government, <laughs> but they decided, shit, guys, we got to do something here. National is just very much cozying up, we're not Labour, but Labour now has become, we're not national. So you've got these two parties. We're not the other guy. And you're thinking, well, crikey, guys, you know, what do you stand for? I mean, you keep saying that, uh, but you kind of do seem pretty similar uh, at this point. Yes, you do. And that. So I've always thought Labour should have been much more aggressive and take the fight to it. And you can see David uh, David Parker was clearly happy to make those engage, engage in those arguments, but Chris Hipkins and Jacinda weren't. They carried the weight on that. Um, they made a political call, but it's, it's just basically backing off each time just meant that National could just go tax, boo, Labour retreats. And, and this is all a, a situation now where National are, the, National are the ones that are going to tax you more. You know, they've introduced, well, they want to introduce four new um, revenue-gathering measures, yeah. you know, yeah. um, whereas and Labour could have just said, we're going to do this one new tax and it's yeah. going to pay for X, Y, Z. Exactly. Uh, in there, you, could, you, you set the cause out and take it. It's all about communication and then showing... Getting over that material self-interest, people, if you're suddenly saying, and now they are, we're saying free dental care, GST off fruit and veg, you know, that's a terrible tax policy. Um, Tell us about G that because, G you know, it's been bandied around a bit, but yeah. 
What's terrible about it? There's a lot of talk. It breaks the sort of broad-based, low-rate approach I was talking to. And once you introduce an exemption there, someone else will say, why can't we have it for meat or for this? And then the next thing you get into what I finished up talking about, you know, we get into the distinctions about what this, what is zero. Because the here's the thing, people don't like this whenever I mention it. They don't think that. But the point is people like me are paid to find the margins, to push the law to the margins. When you put a margin in, it gets pushed. And so that's what will happen. The advisors will be looking to say, we want to have this zero rate because it makes a difference for cash flow for businesses. But so, but the main thing is, what is the problem you're trying to solve with this with this cut other than labor's polling? And that- I think about head on there, Terry. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, but that is, you want to put more people in, more money in people's pockets. Well, give them money. And this it, this leads to a very strange, because the, the tax working group says that, Treasury says that, the Welfare Expert Advisory Group all say that. Just give people more money and you get it directed to where you need it then. It help. There's also this false assumption um, of, it, it's easily sold that if you take 15% off the price or whatever it is, you take the GST off, the full benefit will flow through to people. It won't, because there is an administrative cost. Yes, our systems, our accounting systems are very good, and we can look at examples from around the world about definitions. We can deal with 95% of all that, but there's still a cost for the the retailers, and it, it starts all the way up the chain. It starts from at the farm gate, and the farmer sells it to the producer, whatever, everywhere down the chain. GST gets charged, and if it's zero rated, it makes a lot of difference. The administrative cost will mean that the full benefit of that cut will never flow through to someone in as they might imagine, unlike an income tax cut, because that will, because it goes straight to you. You're paid directly. In so immediately the effect is diluted. And then but we also know from examples overseas um, that in some cases the benefit never flows through. Britain, for example, um, they cut the VAT rate, criminal GST rate on tampon sanitary products, it's a, to zero percent from five percent, and the estimate by one um, specialist was practically none of the benefit flowed through. The e-books rate was cut for e-books. The rate was cut from twenty percent to zero, and none of the benefit flowed through to consumers. So we have a problem with our. Uh, with our um, monopolies uh, and regulation anyway. And um, how are you going to keep track of prices when it's moving like a movable feast? The example I like to give is, think about the fuel tax cuts that happened. You saw the effect straight away, but within two or three weeks... They just crept back up. They crept about then there, where they're getting it all. So the full benefit never flows through. And I think, what is the point? You strip it back. This sounds like Luxon because this is what he says he does. You strip it back. What is the problem you're trying to solve? People haven't got enough money. Give those people more money and that, that let them spend it that way. What do you make of this um, a throwaway comment? Like, uh, um, you know, I've won the argument now uh, kind of line, which is, oh, but if you do that, it'll increase inflation. And then if you're uh, not cutting public services um, and you're borrowing to fund it, that'll increase inflation as well. Uh, so we can't we can't just give people money. Well, that's all well good, but what's your answer then, Mister Smartpants? Oh, a tax cut. Well, hang on, that does the same thing, doesn't it? <laughs> um, this is this is as I said. There's an unhappy confluence of events that's 
we created these issues. It is a fair point to say that if you do cut the taxes here, you will be um, putting money. If you cut taxes, that is potentially inflationary. Depends what people do with it, but you know, Nicola was saying that save it as well. People will spend it because if they're under that much pressure, they will spend it. Why well, they're in a crisis or we're not, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, cutting public services, well, then what's going to fill that gap? Where, where is that? Or is that just a means of shuffling off privatization and therefore building in extra costs into the system? So that doesn't seem to work too well for me. And I, we keep thinking, I think too much of the thinking thinks New Zealand's an open economy sitting next door to Europe or part of America, where, where instead we're an isolated market of 5 million people 2,000 kilometers away from anybody. So we will have a lot. We don't have a lot of capital. We don't have easy access to markets, uh, physical, physically easy access to markets. And so we, 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 we have to roll the state role. It will be larger because we simply don't have the capacity to build a competition to get the efficiencies you'd like to see. So that's where I land on that one in terms of what the role of the state is. And so cutting services, you know, again, it's usually proposed by someone who isn't going to suffer. The Labour have ruled out most um, tax changes. They've said it's definitely not going to happen. They've introduced this small change on uh, GST for some food, uh, which will only apply if they win. What kind of punch in the teeth is coming uh, with a, a Labour government that isn't pushed on tax? Well, what what are the outcomes of that? If we want to build a productive economy, we have to address how we invest. I think that, that yeah, that's why taxing taxing capital differently directs it. Ta- tax is one of those amazing things where it, there's a very strong behavioural response. People are very twitchy about it. I, I thought one of the most interesting things, and we haven't got round to them, about the responses to the Tipati Māori and Green Wealth Tax proposal is just how many people thought they would be affected by it. And it was a very visceral reaction to it, uh, that we, you're taxing, how dare you tax my wealth? You know, we've already taxed that. Um, you shouldn't tax it again. Well, GST is a double tax. If you take that view, you're paying GST on top of your income tax. So in the tax Labour just drifts on rather than address these issues. You will need to address the tax thresholds were last adjusted in 2010. To go into a, it's a for a major electric a major party to go into an election against that background and not have any proposals. I find astonishing. Really, about that. Yes, they they're trying to say we're responsible, but they're trying to say we can help you. And the idea of help is the GST cut, well, in nine months' time, if you're re-elected. The best thing they could have done was something like the cost of living payments they threw out last year. You know, they were messy, but at least they put money in the people's pockets. But again, so, and they, they caught on a rock between being fiscally responsible. But you're not going to get any rewards for anyway, because National still managed to take the, to take the podium on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird scenario. Empirically, the evidence doesn't actually support that in my view but then now might be biased but <laughs> um yeah no so labor sort of drifts in there um and I, I i was asked you know this morning you know to quote if if you remember nixon only nixon could go to china if you remember that quote i think it could be that national if they get in or the next time they're in power they're the ones that have to deal with 
a capital gains tax in some form or a death duty wealth tax, whatever, because the situation at that point will have reached a point where they have to do something. And it has to be them because Labour are unable to because National are on their flank. Yes, that's it. It Well, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah, it it does. It seems incredibly strange when you're not prepared to make the argument as to why we tax. And, And again, the argument can be made, as I said earlier, we need this because of the general communal benefit, but also if we want to preserve this broad based low rate approach, this is the approach we would take, which is what the tax working group said. You know, when Winston threw a spanner in the works there, he was essentially saying, condemning, saying the poor or poorer workers, workers are going to pay for property owners to have tax-free gains. Is the sum of it. And Winston, of course, will slime his way out of that smile, give a big grin. Not my first rodeo, son. I said, I wish it was your fucking last, if you excuse my French. <laughs> I've had the misfortune with politicians to see the likes of Paisley and Jerry Adams, people that side work with people in the darkness. Peters is, in blunt terms, a gobshite. And I'm happy to see that quote be quoted on that. Oh, it will be. <laughs> um, he's, you know, he, he, yeah. he, he, he's too ill-disciplined to achieve anything in government. He ought to have been the first Maori prime minister of this country, but he just wasn't prepared to put the necessary work in to do that, achieve that. That's that's my view. He's just wasted a politician, some talents, but wasted. And hopefully we won't talk about New Zealand first again. No, well, they've got three lines in their tax policies. It's a typical Winston. So basically, oh, we'll make it up as we, we get there. No. Which is, he yeah. talks, yeah, which is typical. Yeah. Let's talk about ACT then. Um, because, you know, I, we, we've covered the green stuff a, a reasonable amount on the podcast um, as being some of the more radical, inverted uh, commas, uh, policy, but the uh, act- it was a bold It was a bold policy. When I, assumed, when I got asked about it on TV, I said, it's bold. It's huge policy. What they and Tupati Mari are proposing are actually gigantic mm. tax increases, uh, which, you know, you're talking about, in take, increasing the tax base for somewhere between 8 and 10%. That is massive, a massive increase, which does tell you perhaps how much neglect perhaps in there, in there but they're, they're really bold approaches. Mm. Um, so I'd say the act, some of the act stuff is maybe even more radical than that in terms of what they're intending to do. Yes. I mean, uh, They've got, they're proposing to go back to basically we've had a two-tier tax system you know, when we referred back to 1989 and the thresholds then. There were just two tax rates. There was, it was 24% and 33%. There was some minor adjustments low end. And actors said, that's nirvana. We want to go back to that, 28% across the board. And so you can see from the modelling that the, the richer you are, the better you do on that. But they've also been consistent with alike Te Pāti Māori and the Greens. The Greens said, we want to do this. Te Pāti Māori said, we want to do this. These are the tax increases we propose to pay for it. ACT have taken the equally consistent approach, well, uh, intellectually consistent approach, is, uh, well, some things have to go. A lot of things have to go. $38 billion over four years is a lot of things. They're basically cutting the government's spending by 7 8%. And what and it's all about back office stuff, you know, disposable people. I think I often wonder we should think more about the fact we have the second highest diaspora in the OECD after Ireland. Why is that? 
we we treat workers abominably. That's the short answer, I think. It's a, it's actually an interesting um, cutaway on, on that point because outriders for both ACT and National have just started raving about Ireland um, as being like an exemplar um, for where New Zealand should be heading. Yes, uh, very strange because Ireland had a industrial policy, the sort of thing where the state was basically directing policy in there um so yeah uh, uh, the, the thing that it gets they they see ireland because they deal with very simple causations ireland has a corporate tax rate of 12.5 percent and bingo that's why they got all that investment job done you know the fact that they were 2,000 miles of dublin you're pretty much across all of central europe in, in europe and you've got 400 million people 300 million people there of course just gets slid by and an interesting, there's a great book I've just finished reading by called Fint by Fintan O'Toole called We Bear Don't Know Ourselves. And it's, it's Fintan O'Toole was born in Dublin in 1958, so three years before me. So we're near contemporaries. And the tra- transform for me, um, from born from Northern Ireland, seeing the transformation that's happened in Ireland is quite phenomenal, quite, quite phenomenal. Yeah, but he picks up some fascinating book to read. Um, you do have to know the bit of the background, some of the characters and chances involved. Um, but one of the points he makes, and I thought was fascinating, is the links of migra- the diaspora, particularly into America, the Irish Americans, the Kennedys, for example. Joe Kennedy, so, sorry, um, John Kennedy made a visit to um, Dublin and Ireland in 1962, which he was just greeted like a, a, a hero and there's close ties and Biden's done something similar recently. Those are actually just as important culturally in drawing investment into Ireland. So but the, the fact is the Ireland took an approach starting in 1958, the year Fintan O'Toole was born, and said basically we're a backwater, we need to change, we, we have to adopt it. And getting into the EU was critical for that. It is interesting to see how they talk about that. I mean, when you're going to when you're going to beat a dog, any old stick will do. But picking up Ireland, when Ireland's growth and tremendous transformation in the 80s and 90s it wasn't... I actually remember reading a Treasury paper about the Ireland's success from turn of the century. I'm a terrible nerd, as you can gather. <laughs> and they, they basically said maybe Ireland got lucky. And they, I think there that the... The, the belief model about the market and everything and non-active intervention from the government, they were running up against that and Ireland had done that and encouraged people in more than just tax cuts. Yeah. The Irish took a, did a, had an industrial strategy. But the, there are a few distortions in that tale now because Ireland, of course, now looked at suspicious, has problems. The, OE, the, the per capita they talk about, and Nick Mowbray was on about it today on Twitter, is is inflated because of Apple's tax planning practices, and they have problems with housing, and they had a horrendous drug problem. Um, uh, and so the issues, the average wages, the, the, the per capita income might be extremely high, but apparently average wages are not necessarily much higher than here. It's a very mixed story there. Yeah, it. it always but, tends to be. But there's always as much more to it. But you can't rule out the question of location. And um, the the I think the interesting point for me was the um, the Irish um, diaspora how the role mm-hmm. that might have played in there. Act stuff is is pretty straightforward as as far as lessons go. We're gonna we are gonna give you a, a big tax cut, um, and we're gonna cut 
all public services to an enormous extent to one of the largest amounts that's ever happened in order to pay for it. Yeah, it's 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 frighteningly brutal. What 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 happens if they have a leading hand in um, some of this policy? What what is the outcome of that in terms of losing both a revenue base, being unwilling to take on debt, and cutting public services all at the same time uh, during an incoming poly crisis? Well, I'm not an economist, but that seems tailor made to drive the country into a huge recession, and you'll just choke off demand. And I think you'd also come back to what I said earlier about we've just been talking about diasporas who's going to come to New Zealand and who more importantly um, are many of the people we've got the skills will they leave that's um, yeah, it, I would be alarmed about that it also is not terribly inclusive I think we, we're at a bit of a cultural point it feels to me where we are now we're embracing the fact we are a Polynesian well, no, not, we're so many Polynesian Pacifica, and I don't want to sound terribly patron. I hope this is probably not coming out as well as I'd wanted to be. But we're an incredibly multi, multicultural, diverse society, and we're embracing that. And it, it seems if you want to just talk raw economics, why do you not embrace the diversity and the talent available to you and build off that? It's our invisibles and weightlessness that will help us get high high income economy if we wage economy. Not selling more cow, more milk, or houses to foreigners. I mean, actually, just as an aside, coming back to the foreign buyers, um, this book here, I think I mentioned, might have mentioned it, is is really very. If you want to understand ACT and uh, the New Zealand Initiative, you need to read this. It was the, funded by the Business Roundtable. Paul Goldsmith wrote it. It's entertaining. There's a lot of good stuff in here. But It's called the, uh, We Won, We you won, lost. You Lost, Eat That, um, A Political History of Tax in New, New Zealand Since 1840 uh, by Paul Goldsmith. Not then an MP, but now an MP. He, he'll have a finance role of some sort. Um, but in there, it talks about what went on. And in early days, the government here funded itself by basically confiscating land off Maori and selling it. And so that sort of came to mind when I was thinking, are we really back to 1860 again, where we're just going to sell, flog off bits of ourselves um, to foreign buyers um, because we're not prepared to do take difficult choices around um, well, an act would say, yes, we can make these difficult choices. They just don't affect us and our voters. And my three batches and whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, New Zealand, as I understand it, had a longer recession post-1988 with a crash. It took four or five years to come out of that. We'd be heading the same way, would be my um, answer, if that level of disinvestment went on. Yeah, I just can't see anything else occurring unless like magically uh, a whole bunch of really um, kind venture capitalists uh, came along and just poured money into the public service. Uh, and that's not going <laughs> to happen. It, it's, it's, seen, it's this thing of seeing it through business eyes and seeing it as a deadweight cost. You know, why have we Ministry of Pacifica people? Um, again, these organisations exist because somewhere along the line there's been a failing. And they're, they're there to make sure that doesn't happen again. Building our, the stories people want to hear about New Zealand, we don't want to be, you know, another 
Little England, as you know, some would refer to Canterbury or the rest of it. We're a hugely diverse. The stories about our story, the, the, um, I'm struggling to find the right words for this, um, which I feel appalled that I am struggling so much. Um, but a Pacific legend, a Pacifica legend, the, the myths, and that's all that intellectual property, just a different view of looking, way of looking at things and artistic. I see enormous potential there, much more, uh, and, so, and it's weightless as well. We, we don't have to worry about the fact we're 2,000 miles or 2,000 kilometers away from the, the nearest landmass. The internet is to New Zealand in the 21st century what refrigerated shipping was in 1880s. It, we can go to the world. We can tell, take our stories to the world. We're, they talk about being aspirational, but I don't think they have the right sort of aspirations. No, but aspirations for particular people and industries, yeah. right? So let's, well, this is, this is going much longer than we'd intended. Um, I, I hope we've still got a bit of time because we've got the Greens and the Party Māori to do. Yeah, never get me talking tax and history. <laughs> and the whole no, it's, it's good though, because I, I want all this in one place. And, and I, you know, if, you're, if you've made it this far, listeners, hold out or, you know, Listen to this in bits and pieces. That's fine too. Probably bits and pieces. That's what I do. <laughs> Fortify um, yourself with drink. We'll have we'll have the um, timestamps uh, in the summary as well, so you'll be able to go and check each one. But the Green Party, um, you were saying just before, for both Greens and the Party Māori, um, these were huge, huge changes. Yes. What was your what was your uh, take on the Green Party tax plans? There's a lot of work's gone into it. I mean, Chloe Swarovic is somebody should not be underestimated. Um, I think people think do underestimate it, but I've been impressed. She's been on the Finance and Expenditure Committee, so you get to watch what's happening there as your tax, that's the group as tax specialists we interact with. So we've been watching where she's been working in that space and the questions she's been asking. It's always people who are asking the right questions, and she's very interesting on that. And I mentioned earlier about this 40-year economic change that she's talked about. So they put a lot of work into this and they've said, look, right, we want to do this. Here's we, because the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, um, they said, you're going to need to spend about $5 billion a year to get things up to speed. And of course, the government blanched at that. But that's the sort of the cumulative neglect. And so the, the bill that's just That's how far behind up. we are. Yeah, the bill just keeps going up. And, and it's by getting, coming back to, Cutting through all that waffle I just did a few minutes ago when trying to express myself, it's getting through and getting people to participate, to to be part, to feel they belong and they can contribute in differing ways. Um, I, the point about looking at migrants as just economic units, we people, too much of the stuff from ACT and National seems to treat us all as just economically disposable units. And then they wonder why people don't come here, or why we have no workers. Except. And it's especially true for um, Pacific people who are, mm. who are coming over from... Um, yeah, but it's, it's just that what goes on with the migrant workers schemes is just unacceptable. But it's this, it's the failing of this... It's this... The mantra of low regulation has become non-regulation. And, and in this, this whole thing, we want low regulation. And the theory is... Everything will blossom, a thousand flowers will bloom, whatever it is uh, in, in that. But low rate, low regulation. I mean, Gresham's law is always appropriate. The good drives out the bad. And what you get is bad operators exploiting um, migrants 
uh, it just it's it reputational damage to us as a country it's it's just sitting there as a ticking time bomb and it we may go off at totally the wrong time because uh, yeah, i just can't understand what we what, what um why people think that is an acceptable practice and whether it does also get to the heart of are these businesses that we should be running if we want to be running a high value economy we seem to be just sort of trying to do everything on the cheap um and there's always someone that can undercut you but the greens plan here has has been to look at okay what do we need to do what what's the cost of that going to be um, so this is what you were saying before. You need to say, look, what are you getting for this? And they're trying to sell the uh, tax changes on the back of that. But what what do you think of the way their choices there and what they're going to tax? Well, they've gone. They've, they've pointed to what long stand. Anyone who's listened to me for a while has said this is a lot. This is a hole in our tax system. We don't tax capital. We we don't have a capital gains tax. We don't have uh, estate tax, death duties, or gift taxes. So they they decided to tackle that with the wealth tax um, on that. They said that their view is two, first $2 million exempt per person, and this is the net, and then 2.5% thereafter. Try anything held in trusts, and we have more trusts per capita than people really know. We, we don't know how many trusts. 600,000 is one estimate. Well, that's convenient and, for some people, isn't it? Well, yeah. It, it, interestingly, I've seen the whole cycle come through, that the, the explosion in trusts being established happened once, and tax is full of unintended consequences. Once you removed death duties in 1992, you started to see this because they were, could be used for other purposes. At that time was getting the rest home subsidy. If the property was held in trust, you had no assets, you could therefore claim a rest home subsidy. Very cynical, you might say. MSD has got wise to that. And it was a full circle. Or in many cases, uh, some cases were to deal with um, relationships, your blended marriages, blended relationships. You want to keep the assets come from the previous relationships separate. Uh, and that, and some families say it's a classic. I don't like him, don't like her, don't like your new boyfriend, don't girlfriend, whatever. And so protect assets they feel they've worked hard to establish. What I'm seeing now is a lot of that's being unwound as that generation ages and suddenly realize we don't need this more. And so it's flushing it out. So that's what's happening. But there's the boomer generation is the wealthiest generation in history. Um, not very lucky with everything, really. That aspect. So anyway, trusts are going to be taxed at 1.5%. Conceptually, that's correct, because trusts were used to avoid um, death duties. They were outside that. The, the death duty regime here was very, very slack. And it's one of the interesting things about the tax working group. They all came from the time when it had been run down and not been used. And so they paid very little attention to it. They never stopped to think, Maybe if we had a better regime, it would still be effective. What happened, um, and it starts in 1949, bit of history here, 1949, the first Labour government, the first national government gets elected. And from that point, at that time in, in there, death duties, gift duties and land tax represented about 5%, just a bit over 5% of the government's revenue, covering about $5 billion dollars in 2022 terms. Starting in 1949 onwards, the thresholds um, and exemptions around gift duties and and death duties and land taxes were greatly expanded. So they started to go into a death spiral. They were collecting less and less tax. And then the argument came in and said, oh, these costs, they don't raise much tax. They, um, They 
difficult, costly to administer, we should get rid of them. And so that's what happens. And this is why, by the way, wealth taxes have fallen out of favour around the world, because the people who have been able to bend politicians' ears most have been able to influence the extension of thresholds and exemptions, and then suddenly they become less um, cost-effective, and then you think, oh, we don't need these anymore. Kind of like neoliberalism does to every public service. Yes, Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very clever circular argument, uh, self, self-reinforcing self argument. So to some extent, the Greens are crutting against the grain. The thing about wealth taxes are two issues about migration. People will take their money elsewhere. They will pack aside and move. Money is, that, that's probably why, if you are thinking about taxing wealth, we should do what the tax working group all agreed on, in back in that, and that's taxing property more than necessarily a full capital gains tax, because that's not going to go anywhere. So let's deal with that. Um, so, and the the Greens did pond plan that they, they've they've given some con, uh, um, allowance for that that people are there. But the other one that's difficult is valuations are a really big issue around wealth taxes. It's um, Two two things. One would be artworks. Do you exclude those? Um, or, but then liabilities. Now mortgages are pretty easy to do. But what about a company that has a huge contingent liability for climate change effects or whatever, or leaky homes, um, things like that? How do you value that? Because that diminishes the value. So there's some interesting stuff in there. Just a quick aside. As we all know. Labour looked at a wealth tax. One of the bits that wasn't meant and then abandoned the idea, one of the things that came out of the papers, which hasn't had a lot of commentary, is that that plan, if it had gone through, would have included an exemption for the family home. The Greens don't do that. They've got the logical approach, in my view, of Let's not get into definitional issues enough. We've got enough definitional issues it, about valuations. It's, it's tax exemptions again, right? Yeah. So it's exactly two million dollars, you know, million dollars, two million dollars per per couple. We're going to be talking targeting the top one percent in the country. Um, and so that conceptually they've got a good approach there. I think the numbers are a bit optimistic. You'll note actually they say they've got some spare revenue which they want to recycle into other initiatives there in there. So they they they've done the arithmetic in there, you know. They, as often is the way with the way the greens are treated. There, the swap that does the homework does everything, all the rest of it. But the vibe based first fifteen player at the front gets all the glory. <laughs> so, what do we think? Like, if the greens are able to get into position as with negotiating power, and they decide to use it uh, and and get some of this stuff through, what kind of position does that put the country in, or your know, median voter in? Your median voter is not going to be affected. That's the key thing about that. The one, as I said earlier, I, might, I may have mentioned in passing earlier, one of the things that did surprise me is how the visceral reaction to a wealth tax. I think it stemmed from the fact that many people think they are richer than they are and will get richer sooner than will ever happen. And it's also tied into a, a fairly realistic issue about cash flow. You know, h- how do I fund this? And the elderly in particular um, with the how in Big Remu area and, and Devonport, where I am, mansions, they will be concerned about how they fund a wealth tax. And the Greens have put in place measurements around, around that. The, the thing that immediately happens or should happen, and tax does happen like this occasionally, 
is that people might say, well, you know, I'm, I've got $4 million tied up in a property, a batch, I didn't barely go to, I'm getting no return, and now I'm having to pay um, $80,000 a year. If I sold that, uh, downsized to something else, I'd have the cash and I'd get a better return. So immediately you switch the money across to more productive. Mm-hmm. That would be the hope and the plan. And I think they do allude to that in, in their discussion. And this is the thing. Here's a stat, which I know in here. Auckland Council, the rateable value of, of properties in the Auckland Council region at 30th June 2024 is $1,048,000,000. $1. Trillion. That's three times the GDP of the country. That's just Auckland. That's insane. The rates on that, the rates are 2.6 billion. That's not much. 2.22%. We don't tax property very much at all. And yes, if you did introduce a land tax, by the way, and and you did these things, there would be a compensating fall. Tax prices would fall because they're no longer there. But as Bernard Hickey's pointed out, our supply is so restricted that the, the the effect of that price fall will be soon caught up in inflation. You've got the ability to shift capital into more productive. Those industries, those other industries, those opportunities, probably industries we've never heard of could emerge. You know, if we song, if we, what I would be wanting governments to be doing is really boosting fiber capability. Uh, uh, bandwidth, the infrastructure, right? The infrastructure, Which allows you to yeah. do this stuff. Yeah, exactly. We've got we're quite good. I mean, you you look at Australia, and apparently it's uh, you can see the steam coming out of the wires as it tries to clunk its way through. UFB, and this, by the way, is a good example of David Cunliffe's great triumph of forcing the separation of Chorus Telecom, but now Spark and Chorus, and actually rigorously comp- into proper competition in enforcing it. Um, that's his great legacy. And we've all benefited from that. And National, to give them credit, made sure it, it actually rolled through. UFB, as I said earlier, it is the great opportunity for us in terms of boosting our incomes. Um, we need the money. It's weightless as well. To, to spend on it, right? So yeah. the Greens plan then does add up. It, it does it, it, for they the They put part, a lot yeah. of work into it. I think you they, I, they won't get as much as they will do because of the behavioral impact of taxes you know, they, they, that's in there and there will be lots of arguments around valuations the rest of it plenty of work for in there but it will make a change uh, the numbers and it makes a change to the system and everyone earning under 125,000 which is close to 4 million people are better off so and that's the, the that's group. a tax cuts part of the, the, the tax cuts they've funded it They've funded it. The numbers, you can say the numbers are optimistic, yes, uh, but nowhere near as optimistic as some of those numbers I've talked about earlier. And you sort of just to come back to the foreign tax, um, foreign buyers tax. There's only so many properties that can be sold, um, and and I and I just wonder how people would look at it. Says so you want to charge me fifteen percent for this, but you don't tax your own property. So, geez, that's a bit bit much, rude, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. Final party for the evening, the Party Maori. Their tax policy is goes further than the Greens in some respects. Yes. The heading I put on it um, for when I was presenting this morning is they don't want no ghost chips. <laughs> um, no, and real ones. It, yeah, they um, 
they've gone for um it's in, it's even bigger in its scope it's the numbers are really eye-wateringly big the wealth tax there is is a graduated scales so it starts at two percent two and a half compared with the two and a half percent that the greens are proposing but then it rises in, on assets more than 10 million dollars it's eight percent that's a fair chunk of change and they want a 45 percent tax rate as well and um and they're increasing the company tax rate to 33%. That's what the Greens are doing that as well. Now, that's typically the, the, would you'd get logical pushback that is not good for businesses and discouraging, which is true, except the way our system runs imputation credits. We say we're basically the tax paid by the company is a credit for shareholders and passed through. And so I've seen some analysis um, that suggest that is suggesting that that might not be increasing corporate tax t- rate is may not be the catastrophic um, measure people imagine it might be. Um, and you'll also get behavioral responses from overseas to manage. So it'll never raise as much as that. But it's it's not quite as dangerous as it, people might imagine. So it, that that's more feasible than at first sight you know, there'll be immediate reactions to it which at first sight sound logical but if you're talking about uh, on the domestic industry and the fact that those credits flow through to shareholders uh, it sort of ultimately comes out a little bit in the wash um in there they also uh, tapati mari have a ghost house tax as they call it um and this is absolute brute of one they said if it's untenanted after six months you have charged 33 percent of the market value yeah, that's that's a real behavioural incentive to let a house uh, in there. Um, Ireland has uh, they, they they mentioned both Greens and Party Mari mentioned other taxes elsewhere around vacant homes. Um, they haven't always worked. He just said interesting behavioural responses. You never quite these things quite work. There's been a lot of criticism in the one in Ireland where you pay three times the rates. So if you if you leave it empty, you basically pay three times the local rates for that is is the tax there. And then the tax rates, they the Tip Party Mario have gone for a gigantic thirty thousand dollar tax free threshold. And this is what I mean, they're using to using yeah. the new taxes to pay for. Yeah, and no and GST off Kai. So uh, yeah. Uh, but the thing, if there's a measure that gets in from Tip Party Mari, it'll be the one It'll be this one. They are saying um, they also want a land banking tax on land undeveloped within four years of purchase. Not unreasonable. I think we probably could do stuff like that. Um, but the one I think is all the parties, if they were honest about tax and trying to improve the system, should look at is $500 million extra for inland revenue in the serious fraud office. Ah, yeah, this is a big one. That's a that's a big one. They talk about seven billion dollars. Um, tax policy guys here, I've always thought, are perhaps a bit blasé about um, the extent of tax evasion that goes on in the country, mainly because our GST is so comprehensive. Someone along the chain, everyone pays GST. There's no avoiding it. Um, so, but you hear estimates in Australia that would be ten, ten, twenty billion dollars a year perhaps lost there. So coming back here, proportionally, it could be 3 or $4 billion a year. Hard to tell exactly what's going on in that. I think in times of pressure like now, evasion will rise because people will be taking shortcuts. And then just all the building industry, there's several industries, but as, as we get more electronic, it gets harder and harder for fraud to happen. And I think 
just talking technically, something that might actually help us dealing with that is to, and, and on GST, is to remove GST on all business-to-business transactions where GST registered businesses. Because there's another case just popped up now. Someone sets up a company, registers for GST, maybe has another company registered with GST, and they're passing false invoices to each other and then claiming GST refund. And then finally, the revenue wakes up to what's going on. I see. Bingo. But you can remove that by having a GST, what we call compulsory zero rating. So the the greens and the bold, uh, the greens and Tipati Mari, big and bold. And you like I like parties to do that rather than <laughs> sort of dribbling stuff around the sludgy middle in here. And you know, act. You you've got giving marks for intellectual consistency, but be terrified of just how that might play out. But at least they they've saying that's. That's they're saying. Well, we want this. You got to pay. We got to pay for it. This is what we want to do. We're 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 in a spot. I'll I'll say that much for this. Hey, yes. thank you so much for um Not going through each of those with us. That's been a such a comprehensive conversation. Thank you so much for stepping us through each of those. I'm sure uh, people will hear you on the radio um, and and see anything you're writing. Uh, but where where can people look for you? I'm on Twitter. I have two Twitter handles. Uh, Trebak is the main one. That's the pub talk, pub banter one. And then the BCL tax is more official one. I'm on LinkedIn, which is, <laughs> I, I have to say, just an aside, I am astonished about what people say on LinkedIn because I think you, you it's the first place to look at your professional and sort of comments about uh, previous prime ministers. It's a bit unhinged there these days. It, it is. Um, I have podcast, the New Zealand Tax Podcast, and that's every comes out every Friday. This Friday, coincidentally, I'll probably be having a look back for 30 years in tax. So if you've got a taste for, for some tax conversation from listening to this one, uh, yeah, that's add right. that onto your, your podcast uh, yeah. Well. I don't ramble on so long, usually, but it's usually about 20, 15, 20 minutes at all. It's just a quick up roundup of the news. And then it, that gets transcribed and published in interest.co.nz. And then, as I said, for the moment, the um, the media seem to think I've got something useful to say. I'll keep, uh, as my brother said, he's got a perfect face for radio or <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much once again. Uh, thank you to our audience uh, for, for having a listen. Uh, if you found anything useful there, share it around. Uh, let other people know that these conversations are happening out there. We can have long-form discourse. We can actually get into the details of this stuff. It doesn't always have to be five-minute uh, clips where we're struggling to find what the vibe is. The information is out here. It is available. Uh, and we can make our decisions based on that. We've got all the links in the summary as usual. We've got the Patreon there. Um, I'll drop a couple of links of Terry's in there as well. We've got a pledge me coming up. Um, we're looking for a little bit of money to fund uh, a couple of bigger projects for the podcast uh, and keep us running into the future as well. So keep an eye out for that. Um, we are hoping to raise somewhere in the vicinity of $5,000. So hopefully see that by the end of the week. We're just waiting for it to be uh, accepted by the Pledge Me platform. That's been another midweek cast from one of 200. We'll catch you on the weekend for some current events. See you later. If I this I'm living a pointless life but learning all your lessons fucking politics is no distinction the words are now it's paid with good intentions and I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they quote this
Live among the people every day. 